Welcome to the Warrior Goddess Revolution, a podcast dedicated to helping you get free, free of shame, free of fear, free of limitations, and free to become the woman you are meant to be. Let the inner revolution begin. Here's your host, Heather Ash Amara. All right, loves, welcome back to Warrior Goddess Revolution. I am here with my dear friend, Matthew Stillman, and we just spent the last five minutes going, what should we talk about? There's like so many things to talk about, unlimited. Um, So Matthew, I would love you to start with, just share a little bit about yourself. I know you hate this. (laughs) Tell us about you, Matthew. Tell us about what Uh, it's like to be, just, you can do this. This is awesome. Why are you, how did you get to be as wonderfully weird as you are? uh, We're going to edit. We're going to edit. Go. um, (laughs) I love your face. I don't know. I mean, I I showed up in a weird family and I had the inclination to, to, to follow some of the weird stuff that they were doing that, you know, it set me off in a particular path. And I've kept on saying yes to being weird, I guess. Not only weird, but but also weird. Super weird. Yeah, super weird. Super nerdy weird. Well, here's, here's how I met Matthew. My friend Sarah Rose was in, we were in New York City. Her partner, her husband had said, if you want to do a book signing, Sarah Rose, call Matthew. He's got people, he's got community. So we called, she called, Matthew did a book signing. Sarah said, Heather Ash, please come. And I was like, no, I don't wanna go. Not interested, doesn't sound exciting. I don't wanna go, I wanna hide. Um, and when I showed up, I, this is what I, is hilarious for me about when I met you is that when I showed up, I was like, hi, my name's Heather Ash. I need a place to hide. And Matthew's response was, "You, yeah, you did. You were like, welcome, follow me. Like, no batting of an eye, no, why do you need to hide? But just like, I get it, follow me. And I follow you down into your basement. And in the basement are rows of books and books and books. And I remember thinking, who is this man that has all of these super cool books? And that was the beginning of a really fun friendship and lots of just crazy situations between you and I in such good ways. But one of the things that I, um, that I loved is your being raised around books and the, the passion that you've had of, researching and pulling things together from multiple different traditions. Yeah. I mean, my, my father, when I was born, my father was the, the manager of what was then probably the the biggest and most important spiritual and occult bookstore in the world, uh, which was called Wiser's bookstore. And it was a real gathering place in the West Village of New York City, where, I mean, I was too young to know this at the time, the stories have been recounted to me, but, you know, the Dalai Lama's brother would come and give impromptu talks about Tibetan Buddhism. Um, if there are such things as famous astrologers, they'd sort of like, you know, they'd hang out there. People who were hungry in the mid to late 60s and early 70s into even into the early 80s, who were sort of hungering for countercultural, spiritual, occult knowledge, went to Wiser's. And Wiser's was, while there certainly were other bookstores that had these sorts of um, books, to be sure, Wiser's was a big bookstore, uh, had just the biggest collections of them, but it also was sort of known for the people who worked there for really being knowledgeable about the materials. And so my dad, his first job there, though he moved up the ranks, was was doing uh, inventory. And in those days, it wasn't computerized. So he 
ended up knowing every single, not that he read every single book, but he knew every single book and sort of had a sense of here's the vibe of them. So I was raised as sort of a, a mascot uh, of the place. And so I was literally raised in the stacks, climbing bookshelves. And there are pictures of me, you know, reading the, the Egyptian book of the dead at age three. I mean, how much was I gathering in? I couldn't say probably very little, but just that it was around. And so whether it was astrology, whether it was metaphysics, whether it was esoteric history, whether it was yoga, whether it was, you know, Taoism, uh, whether it was tarot cards, um, all these things were sort of equal footing for me. And so that's, you know, where I was sort of spending my time after school. But of course, my my father had his own library at home and was interested in um, a meaning-making, spiritual, inquiried life. My mother as well. And, you know, lots of kids who are raised in situations like that run screaming. And for whatever reason, it made sense to me. And there was something in my soul that said, yeah, this is, these are some of the questions that I'm wondering about. So that continued in your explorations around learning and row and all the, the trainings and teachings that you did as a youngster. So I'm thinking about the study that you also got besides the books, you also then had really deep community that you were part of as a young, yeah. a young man. Yes. I mean, so I was, you know, my, my parents were involved in a, a spiritual organization um, called the school of practical philosophy, which has its own story. Um, and it was, you know, had intensities, which maybe you wouldn't have wished for, but also had incredible disciplines as well. There was a great scholarliness, in the school. So I was studying Sanskrit from a young age um, and reading Indian, though not only Indian philosophy and spiritual stuff, but also the school was also interested in, in Shakespeare and interested in, in other philosophies as well. So I was um, in that regular stuff. I got a, a very lucky to have a, a fancy private school education in New York. And so I got a really good education there. And I just, again, had a very eclectic, uh, Catholic, you know, lowercase c, interest in all sorts of stuff. So I was reading widely um, as a young person and practicing uh, as much as I could as well. And all this stuff sort of added up to a very uh, diverse and I wouldn't say I was a jack of all trades, but I was a jack of wide trades. Um, but I sort of was conversant in a lot of different stuff and I'm no expert but I just sort of had this stuff from pure philosophy, pure intellect stuff to, I was interested in somatic things as well and experiential and phenomenological um, experiences as well. So that's, that's part of my, how I got to be me, I guess. And there was, it's so beautiful because there's this, the intellect that you have, and like you said, like the somatic piece that you have is so deep and that's rare. Like I see that either people are very into the somatic and they're not in, as much interested in the research and the how do things fit together or they're disconnected from the body yeah, and more connected to the intellect. And so how did that come about that you were able to bridge the, the two worlds of the, the intellect, the books, the research, the exploration mentally, as well as that deep dive into the body that you do still? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, my, I adore my parents and they gave me incredible gifts. And they also were um, intellectuals, bookish, um, and not really embodied. I mean, it's something they're still trying to do to this day. And I'm so glad they're alive and long may it be so. Um, but I didn't learn to love exercise and play and games and trying to be in my body from them, something that they really struggled with. You know, I, I wrestled from a young age, so there was like a, a great tactility um, in some of the ways that I was working with uh, embodiment. My mother uh, was in the first class of the Swedish Institute. Um, and so I was her study buddy when she was learning. So I was learning about effleurage and anatomy and stuff like that, that all, you know, I was interested in it. And my mother, you know, despite being a massage therapist, I think there was a, some of the physician heal thyself stuff going on for her. I think she wanted to, you know, 
trade in her desire to care for people, her sensitivity in a good way, and was helping people with their embodiment as a way to help her with her own. I haven't talked to my mother about this specifically, but that's sort of like my educated guess on the matter. So, you know, it's unusual for, you know, a, a 10 year old kid to be learning about massage in the West. Um, I think that in other parts of the world, it wouldn't be crazy that you'd sort of see it being done and you'd have it being done to you and it would sort of be there in the culture. But, you know, my mother's been very ahead of the curve for a long time. And, you know, my mom was doing um, macrobiotic food in the late 60s and early 70s. I was raised macrobiotic. Um, you know, my mother was mocked for raising me without sugar and that, you know, became like a, well, it's obvious. Why would you give your kid sugar, you know, 25 years or 30 years later? It's still coming out. And my mother feels very vindicated. So there are some examples that my mother was trying to contend with her embodiment in varying ways through food and through other things. So, um, but again, it, it fell on fertile enough soil that made me want to keep on wondering about it. Um, and I think that's, you know, I would make no claim to being some sort of like super crazily embodied person. I think, you know, I like so many people live in the, in the wreckage of living in the West, particularly as a, as a white person where you're cut off from big parts of your body, even if you're working really well to, to go the other direction. Um, so I think it's, you know, maybe I'm better than most, but not like, I'm not some crackerjack ninja um, that is so, has their psoas so incredibly soft and their spine totally at ease. And, um, you know, I, I can get down and I can move my hips, but there's, there's more to it than just that. And there's so much that we're contending with, especially in white bodies of the, the way that we hold ourselves. Oh yeah, I mean, there, there's an I think a great article that was written a few years ago by Tata Hazumi that is titled "White People Can't Dance; They're Traumatized," and he makes a oh they make a excuse me um make a I think a fairly good case though it's a preliminary one because um, Tata's thought more about it in the years hence that and other people have added to the conversation that there's a type of trauma that being white does to the body that is a freezingness um, below, let's just say, the rib cage down from the diaphragm down. And I think your, the joke is that white people can't dance or that they dance in this sort of like very stiff way. And that speaks to a kind of stiffness that happens when um, standardized pedagogy sitting all the time um, holding your emotions in uh, Christianity, you know, waspy thinking, like all these things sort of lock the body in a such a way that also has a consequence for um, on the body, but also to the body of the world. Yeah, I was thinking that's super generous that it's from, you know, rib cage down, because I was thinking neck down is more <laughs> accurate for many of us. Sure. Absolutely. But I mean, I think that the, the line is that you, you, if you ask someone to, you know, the, the head is pretty big and it doesn't mean that you have just because you're in a white body that something you have incredible flexibility and mobility in there. Of course, like there's um, in the neighborhood is also frozen, but just there's a real sense of not being, if you put your hand on your heart, it's above where you're frozen. And there just isn't in the West a deep sense of interoception of being able to feel inside of your body or to just have the flexibility to do stuff with it. Part of the reason why that people in the West love athletes, like, oh my God, they're doing what I could never do. So there's like a longing for it or dancers or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so there's two places I want to go, and they're going to come together at some point, but I'm going to give them both to you, and then we can see where, where it goes. So the yeah. first one is around, around this idea of sexuality. Yeah. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations around the way that, especially women, true for men, 
as well, but especially as women that we have given our sexuality away, that we've repressed our sexuality, that there's this dis-ease in relationship with the form, the yeah. body, and also just sexual energy. Yeah. And so that's one piece. And the second piece is around grief. Mm. And they're connected. They are. But one of the ways you and I connected was around grief. Because we were both, at the time, going through really intense relationship endings. Yeah. And navigating that. So I'd love to hear like your journey around both sexuality and around grief. Two huge questions. Go. Two huge questions. Go. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a a big two pronged question. But you know, women are um, on the menu in Western non culture, the dominant culture, um, and they're on the menu being measured up if they are desirable enough, uh, if they're, and their dollars are, are required that, as I, as I've heard say, that women's dollars are the most reliable dollars. And so there's like a, always a, a hunger to like, how can we get trust with women so they can buy from us forever? Um, and so women are not only their dollars, the women are not only their, their desirability, but the fact that, they are being sliced and diced and hungered after with uh, with drooling chops from every marketer the moment you turn on your computer uh, and when you step outside i'm not a woman and never have been but from a from a distance or whatever distance i am from it it has uh wrecked me and broken my heart and i've seen the some of the consequence of it and I've never, ever felt that in my bones. Um, and you and probably other people who have who are listening to this have felt some of the, the weight of that, uh, of being you know, sexualized when you were 10 or whatever it is. I mean, there, there are too many things to name about the way that uh, women bear the burden of being women in this, uh, in this time. You know, employment, harassment, um, and even if you're like, you get paid really well and you're not being harassed, like just to see like, oh, why? I, little things I need to do to make myself acceptable. These things all add up. The, the nipping, the tucking, the sucking, the spanxing, whatever it is. Not to say any of those things are wrong, but just that they collectively have a cost. So like there's there's a grief right there. It's so easy to numb yourself and say, well, that's just the way the world is. And we got to, you know, get over it and suck it up. And, um, but you know, what do you do with that? And so that, understandably women have all sorts of, or not all women, but it is not uncommon to find women to have distorted senses of experience of what it's like to be in their own body. And of course, you know, the other side of this is like the, the, the Western non-culture's complete strange relationship to sex, both, you know, saying it's the best thing and the most important thing and you are bad for wanting it or there's certain conditions which must be fulfilled for it to be acceptable. And then generally just what I was saying before about, you know, sitting and uh, locking ourselves down and not having feelings, all these things have sh show up in the body. So, and then women are driven into, you know, reading Cosmopolitan, which do people even read Cosmopolitan anymore? But I have no idea. But the, uh, the the lists that women are driven into, like, well, here's the thing you need to do to, to be sexy and feel sexy and finally get the man and do da 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 or be you or be strong or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because you're a woman, go girl power, woo woo. And, you know, when do you ever get a chance to actually just be yourself and have that be sustained and blessed by anything that looks like a culture around you. Like, now that's true for other people too, but women get a particularly special shaped um, boot on their neck. So yeah, I mean, women, 
and I guess you know, you haven't said it specifically, but one of the things that I do professionally, though not much of this has happened in the last year uh, in COVID times, but I'm uh, a tantric body worker. And so I've worked with mostly women, though not only women, to help them move spiritual slash sexual energy in their bodies, to help them get more in touch with, uh, with that which they've been denied access to or haven't had the kind of access that they would have wished for. And to have it start to move, not that um, my work with them is some sort of magic thing that it's all done and dusted and they have complete access to freedom and, you know, nonstop orgasms in their life. But it's a, if, if we're lucky, um, a courtship of being able to begin the, the wondering of what it's like to inhabit a body differently and to titrate your nervous system so that it can actually hold different capacities but it's more like the hand on the gate latch into a wild space and you're the first few steps in rather than thinking that you've just entered the front room and got a good look around and be like, all right, I'm going to move in here. But it's a beginning and it's a mysterious one. Um, and so it's a, it's a burdensome privilege that I've stumbled into that uh, profession. And I don't know when it's going to come back or if it is or what the shape of it will be. But in order to do that profession, which I again stumbled into, requires the capacity to both register and be present to and not try to fix or dodge the grief that would inevitably be in so many women's bodies and joys too. I mean, the, the joys live, live there too. They're not alone, but so often in a bright-sided um, culture that always wants to go forward and never look back and wants to sort of ignore these hard things and want you to be positive uh, and look on the bright side. Sometimes they haven't been um, held well. Yeah. And I always see that when we, we work, when I work with women in circle that with warrior goddess, with the, the first four lessons, everyone's like, this is great. This is great. And then we hit lesson five, which is around creativity and sexuality. Collapse. Yeah. Like we don't have to go here, do we? It's like, yeah. yeah, we do. We do. But the the like the amount of gentleness that needs to happen, I think, for women to unpack the amount of hurt and trauma and projection and all the things that are being held, the emotions, uh, um, you know, the lineage trauma. So much. It's so much to turn towards. Yeah, and it's and it's of course you know there's so much story in it, uh, which has been added on to, uh, and there's so much ignoring of the story, and there's also um, things which are way outside of the individual, but are just sort of like atmospheric. Yeah, I was thinking about when I was, because I had the weird childhood of growing up overseas and you know, tons and tons and tons of gifts with that. One of the things that was also really interesting is that I stood out in a really huge way. Like there's no way to fit in because yeah. I was very different. And, um, and then, and that also then even as a young woman, there was a lot of energetic around that. So I just remember that feeling sense of walking around and I'm, I'm sure this would be in the United States as well, everywhere, but it, it was heightened in a way. Um, because of all of the movies and the, you know, what's held for, for Western women. And just as a really young woman, not knowing what, what is that? What is that energetic? Yeah. And I think so many of us are carrying that in our body. And so even to turn and face the, the invisible in a way, yeah. you know, there's so many layers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I recall, the, I, mean, I, think, I know I told you the story before, but just to recount it, I mean, a woman came to me and said, I've heard you're great, and my friend said you're great, and I uh, want to have a session with you, let's do it soon, and I want to have a G-spot orgasm. It's really important, I've heard they're the best, most important thing, they're going to like open my heart chakra up and like release my body, and like I need to have a G-spot orgasm. I'm like, well, that's, I'm really glad you have a clear intention, but I can't 
guarantee you that we're going to have one. Like there aren't just like buttons to press on you and that you'll have one. And it's the first time we're ever meeting. Like I can't, like I'm going to be learning your body. I'll be listening intently for sure. Um, she says, well, okay, but my, my friend who's referring me had one and she said it was amazing and I'll, you know, I've read about them and seen like, I've got to do it. I'm like, okay, but just so, just so you know. And so, you know, we're in the session and, you know, I could say more about what the session looks like, but, you know, we get to a point where, where we got to was not an inevitable place to get, but um, I got to a point where I'd finished her, all her posterior chain and was coming down the front of her body and asked if she wanted her her breast to be worked on and she rolled her eyes. She was like, fine, sure. And I'd sort of, you know, asked all the permissions that I do and I'd finished working on her right breast and she's like, there's no sensitivity on these. Like, just, let's just go on to the, like, I want, like, I promise you, I'm not skimping you. I'm not watching a clock. Like, you'll get every inch of attention. She's like, fine. And now I won't, I don't say this story because I'm some sort of like um, magic toucher that like only I could have done this by any means. But when I started to work on her left breast somewhere in the midst of it, she started to weep and then her weeping turned into heaving and then her heaving started turning into like bucking and like like an, a deeper ache and then, then that deeper ache of sort of heartbroken moaning turned into keening and then when you're at that point you know the body starts sort of like shaking from crying so much and and a body can't hold that you know the, the chassis just starts like the bolts start to come off and so like their will it starts to come down but she was there and the keening went to moaning and the moaning went to wailing and the wailing went to crying and the crying went to sniffling and I just have to be with that. And, and we never got to her genitals on that day. But what she said, and I never would have predicted this and I don't can't promise this um, in any way. It's not like on my website of like, and here you can have this. Um, but she said, when we spoke about it, the session, she said, I had a grief orgasm. She's like, I, it wasn't pleasurable, but I didn't realize that my breast actually had so much capacity that to feel so much. And, she, and this woman had um, really big, but also very beautiful breasts. And she said, people have always grabbed my breasts. Always, always, always. They've treated them like radio dials. They've treated them like pillows. They've treated them like they were theirs. And she said like i didn't even realize that i'd shut off the sensation in them and all that crying again this is saying what she said was for all the time that she had lost of and for all the hurt that had been engendered towards her but particularly she was saying like i didn't know that i could feel all this and you know, I don't, I don't know what the analog would be. The, that, that's the, there's, there's no metaphor. Like that's the story. And so she didn't know that she was coming in to have a, a grief orgasm. And I didn't, I never would have picked that phrase. I would have just said like, that would, was just profound heartbrokenness. But for her, it was a type of release um, that allowed her to not, you know, ejaculate from her genitals, but to ejaculate from her eyes, like her eyes wept all the tears her breast never could for, I'm making up the, the years, 30 years of being locked down. And what would you weep for if you suddenly had such a thing opened for a moment? I mean, and so, but my job was not to stop her or to make it better or to like 
keep on massaging her breasts or like get to her genitals then like okay let's like have a blended orgasm now like like can you be with someone's grief that is so close to the sweetness of pleasure because she was feeling it but it was tight like she was feeling this sensation in her breast that she hadn't felt so i mean there there's the you know there's that a uh, a beautiful poem by khalil gibran that says your joys are your sorrows unmasked and that self-same well from which your laughter rises was once full with your tears and how else can it be the deeper the sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed out with knives? Anyway, it goes on, but, you know, that's an embodiment of that moment. And that woman was sadly on the front lines or in and in the trenches of that war between joy and sorrow, but also as a as a scarred soldier from the, uh, the times. It's such a powerful story. And there's the, there's a couple pieces in it. One is our desire to just go for the pleasure sometimes, yeah. to just go for the orgasm, to just go for the release, to just go for this experience of bliss and ecstasy and being out of our bodies. And that, like you said, there's that, we'll just press the button so I can have this experience because I've never had this experience before. And my friend had it, so therefore I should be having it. Yeah. And that's what I love about your work and and your heart is that your capacity to hold the grief and to also be like, who knows what's going to happen here? And I think all of us get to learn this skill more and more in our lives of the willingness to be with what arises rather than what we wish was arising. Yeah, for sure. Uh, which is not to say that you, I mean, please, like, in, have your allotment of joy, like, pleasure is great. <laughs> um, in no way, like, it doesn't have to be, always be a slog, but slogs can be part of it. Um, I mean, I'm sure we've talked about the book Pleasure Activism. I mean, like, please bring all sorts of pleasures into uh, the ways that you're proceeding in your days, um, by all means. But to have the capacity to not dodge the hard things as they arise or as they are lodged in the way that you need to proceed. Because some people are gonna walk with a limp for the rest of their life. I mean, and I mean that you know, actually with a limp or with an emotional limp, but your, your capacity to have that limp be part of your swagger would be quite a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good reminder that it's not either or, it's not in order to have the pleasure, you're going to have to go through the pain. Mm -hmm. That is sometimes true. Sometimes but sometimes true. have the pleasure, like go towards the pleasure. And, and something that I see in women is that often they have no idea what brings them pleasure, yeah. no permission to have pleasure. Totally, because they've been, they've been good girls. They've, they've served uh, their mothers. They've served their families. They've, um, the families of origin, the families that they've had, uh, they've served their careers and so and they've had to harden themselves in varying ways that they may have done emotionally what this woman did to her breasts yeah and my experience is that when i you know, i feel like many many years ago um, i had done a bunch of spiritual work and i had done a really really good job of separating spiritual path from sexuality two oh, different yeah. things and because I was a spiritual being, and I at the time I, I was a spiritual teacher in my community in Berkeley, that I had this whole um, stereotype basically of who I should be. And it should be long brown hair that was braided, baggy clothes, separate, yes. like really cut off from the waist down. Like I was not, that was not part of my body. Yep. I was this lofty, like inspiring being and to get a download one day of like, Heather Ash, you've come as far as you can go. You have to now 
handle, navigate, turn towards all the repression and fear and separation that you've created between spirituality and sexuality. Yeah. And how terrifying that was to step onto that path, but also how incredibly liberating. And, and what it created then is I became authentic. I mean, when yeah. I look at myself, when I look back at who I was then, when I was in my um, late 30s, I was good at what I did. I was a really good teacher, but I wasn't authentic in the terms of being embodied. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes get curious about like, what will I be in 20 years from now? In terms mm -hmm. of like, what do I not know now about my relationship to my body and pleasure and life? Yeah, I mean, not that this is the only measure, but you look at a woman like Liz Koch, uh, who's been working on this work of softening the psoas and having uh, a free lower body for almost 50 years. I mean, that woman is is not a spiritual teacher, but has such wise things to say because of her, you know, and she's come at it from a different direction. She's done the embodiment thing and it still feels like it's not done for 50 years. Um, but the fact that she has so many wise things to say, not to say that she hasn't done spiritual work in that time, I'm quite certain she has. Um, but, you know, man, to have more 75-year-old women like that in the world, not bad. But yeah, this, um, I mean, what you just said is, I mean, I think captures so much the, uh, I think a proper critique of, of Western spirituality, which, has often seized on Eastern or non-Western modalities as a way to tap in, but still end up bringing their home uh, broken culture in their perspective to it. So you end up getting a lot of new boss, same as the old boss. Like, well, I'm not Christian. I'm going to be, you know, totally into Indian things or Chinese things or Mexican things or whatever it is. Um, any place that's not America, that which is terrible, everyone knows that, and Christianity, which is terrible, everyone knows that, but you end up bringing the exact same desires for purity and transcendence and um, that the body isn't real and the real thing is your will and and that just gets you like right and, and that heaven's the real thing. This earth is, you know, like, we want to take care of it because we love Mother Earth, but seriously, like, you know, not the body. And so there's this fracture there's this real dissonance in spiritual work in the West, wherever your place is, because it it comes from a disembodied culture that even its approach, proper approach to try to wonder about spirituality is fractured um, because it, it doesn't mean that your embodiment towards, um, your work towards embodiment means that it needs to be genitally focused or all about sex, but just to include it the people who dance well doesn't mean they're necessarily good in bed, but it's used as an analog, like, oh, they can move in this way. They might be able to move in that way. Like, I mean, I've heard tell that Bruce Lee, who was an incredible mover, was terrible in bed. So like, um, that's anecdotal. Like, I've never slept with Bruce Lee, um, but I've heard that from someone who slept with him. Like, um, <laughs> so. but I mean, like, whatever. But there is something about the capacity to be in your body, which has variations in other places or applications in other places. Yeah, in a lot of other places. And to, to underscore that piece of include sexuality. It doesn't have to become the focus. It's not you know, anything better than or worse than, but it's part of our experience as humans. Yeah. And as westernized humans, we're all... And I think no matter how sexually free you might think you are, that we're all still navigating Christianity, original sin, um, all that yeah. stuff. Colonialism, you know? whiteness. Colonialism, yeah, all yeah. of it, all of it. And to keep peeling that off as part of our our path, part of our yeah. human path, regardless yeah. of, you know, spirit, sex, like all of that separate human path of healing. Yeah, but I mean... There, there, there's that joke, of course, that like when you're coming, you say, oh, God, like there is a profoundly spiritual aspect wherever you fall on the spiritual continuum, even if you are a non-believer, but sort of like want some sort of discipline in your life, that 
not as a place of rapture for people, as a place where people go to to distract themselves, to please themselves, to please others, to feel more at home, to blow off stress, to uh, to take a, an afternoon or a week off to just do that. It's like, oh, that just sounds amazing. It's a place of refuge for people. And so what if some skill was brought into that refuge, into that capacity? That would be a thing. Be a thing. And just because you have a desire for it doesn't mean that it's easy or that you know what to do because we're we've all been raised in this fractured place and time in the, in the wake of that. So it's it, like so many things, it's good to, to go with someone and not just uh, tromp into a, an unknown forest. Like, I can do this because it's natural and I'll just get it. It takes practice, for sure. Yeah. And, and willingness. I think that's the biggest key. Sure. And so what would you say, Matthew, if you, for somebody who resonated with that story, that feeling sense of armoring, of knowing, yeah. and I, I probably almost every woman that's listening to this and probably any man that's listening to this in some way as well, there's, there's that recognition that we've armored in some way in the body. Yeah. How would you invite someone to gently in relationship to themselves start to explore that process of unarmoring or in relationship with others? Oh, I mean, there isn't, there's so many ways. Um, and I, and I don't, I wouldn't want to be so, uh, ungenerous to say that I know every person who's listening and what they've had to shoulder or what they've mastered or worked on. But some of the things that might be relevant, depending on what you're inclined towards, because, you know, if you're inclined towards dancing, well, you know, doing, working on dance that has you sort of get down and low might be a thing. Like, and that's not like sexual, um, but like, maybe that's a path for you. You know, if you sort of are um, sort of a, a different type of somatic type and you sort of think like oh breath works my way in well you know maybe you join our breath collective uh which is a really great uh five day a week live breathing community that at 9 a.m eastern standard time or 6 p.m um pacific you know they for between 12 and 17 minutes they do a different breathing practice every single day and you find out the ones that feel good for you and you start to mobilize by breathing in different ways, like, oh, wow, like this is opens, my chest is opening, my stomach feels different, like, I can like now have more articulation, like, um, but if you're on a healing path, and you think, well, geez, I've never, you looked at some things, like maybe you start to do uh, family constellation work, or, um, or somatic experiencing to sort of take you into some of these different stories, or maybe you start to learn body work, or maybe you start to, maybe you get a, uh, a tantric body work session with me or someone like me. And there, you know, there are a lot of amazing women practitioners. There are fewer amazing male practitioners, certainly who I'm aware of, not that there are none. Um, and those can be really great guides. And, you know, maybe you're a, a super bookish person like I am. Maybe there, and there are good books. Maybe you have a really willing and patient partner who bless their hearts, whatever their genders are, like, yeah, let's try to do this from a book because we live in, you know, Paducah and there's no chance that we're getting to New York or LA anytime soon to find a really good practitioner. And we're going to try to do this ourselves and maybe have a phone session with someone who knows what they're talking about to help us give more ideas. I mean, those are some ways, but there are so many others. Um, but those are some. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that's, beautiful. Helpful. that's helpful. What it directs people towards is if you have a willingness and that you open, there are many, many pathways. Yeah, you don't need to sign up for a de-armoring workshop, though you could. I mean, there are good ones, but sometimes the a better approach is not trying to come in, not try to ram your way through the front door, though it can be. Sometimes sidling up alongside of it, it can sometimes unwind itself in a different way. It doesn't have to be, you know, levered on like a, 
like a walnut and just like, okay, we've cracked it. We've broken your, your armor. Like, ah, haven't you had enough, been on the receiving end of enough of that? Um, which doesn't mean there aren't good ones. There are and it could work for you, um, et cetera. Yeah. But to go go with this, the the whole range. Yeah. Of what does this what does this being need? Like what does this human need? What would be the best next step? And we're so blessed to live in the time that we're in that there are so many resources yeah. around sexuality, around grief, around somatic experiencing, around trauma. Yeah. Ah, such a it's such a relief that there is there's support now. And this this wasn't true, like you were saying in your your parents' generation, less support. In the generation before that, probably no support or very, very little support. Sure, or even knowing that you needed to have any, but um because certainly the story from that period was you can do it yourself and and your capacity to do it by yourself was a measure of your goodness. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it still takes discernment because there's a lot of shitty practitioners out there. Um, let's just leave malice alone, although there certainly are some of those, to be sure. But, you know, I'd say, like, not all body workers are the same. Not all grief practitioners are the same. I mean, there's are no lack of, you know, 10 days to, to top Tantra out there. Um that are really goal oriented and fast and not good or predatory and then turn you into um, a milk, into like a an udder to be milked for, for dollars and to get you to a particular place. I mean, I, I wouldn't name the person, but you know, there's a, a woman who runs sexuality uh, immersion events, you know, in pre-COVID times. And part of her goal is like, we want women to have Kundalini experiences as soon as possible, which is like a crazy thing to say. It's like, it's so American. It's like, how fast can we summit as opposed to how much skill can we build that the summit is actually not that important. You can't stay at the summit for very long. You know, there's a reason why, uh, why Indian and Buddhist um, sages and saints and monks said like, oh God, Kundalini is a crazy thing. We need to like worship her for a thousand years before we even decide to like look upon her lotus feet. You know, there's like reams of like techniques and studies. Like it's so Western to say like, we know how to do it. We're just gonna blast you to the top. Not gonna like seriously fuck with your nervous system or your brain, just make you feel destabilized because it can't be held well. So it doesn't mean that it couldn't be, but just like, I'm in no way a, like a politically conservative person, but have some like cautiousness and chin downness to like, okay, maybe my own intuition on like, we realize like intuition's everything, but intuition isn't, isn't everything. If you were raised in a time that sort of like bent your capacity to understand and perceive things well, you sometimes need to leave the Dunning-Kruger effect behind where you think you're an expert in everything just because you sense it well. And sometimes ask other people, like, what do you think of us? Um, and to be brave enough to have the conversation, to be able to talk with your friends to say, hey, I really want to work on the sexual energy thing in my life. And this thing looks good to me. What do you think of it? I sort of have a good feeling, but what do you think? That's a really good conversation to have, too. It doesn't mean you need to, like, both get your pants off and, you know, rub your genitals next to your friends for the sake of, you know, being close and being super open, though maybe. But that conversation suddenly makes the whole thing less weird if you do it well. If you do it well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I know that was one of the revelations for me when I was really exploring my sexuality was I started asking other women what their experiences were. Yeah. And it was it was like the most incredible conversations and healing um, that was really beautiful. So, yeah. Okay. So last piece around grief. Yeah. And you talk so beautifully, Matthew, around the, the, um, the bittersweetness of learning how to be with grief rather than go over it or go under it or go around it. Yeah. 
And so just any share that you have of your experience and your, um, yeah, your heartbreak in relationship to grief and our human, especially Western relationship to grief. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is the word gift. And the word gift um, is we sort of automatically think like, oh, it's a great thing and it's wrapped in a bow and it's a present and it's the, you want one and you give it and you're full of them. And, you know, um, it's your purpose in life to give your gifts or to, you know, so it's your love language and you give gifts, whatever it is. The etymology of it is a great um a great etymology. It comes from an old Icelandic word, giftjen, which I think, if I recall, is, is spelled G-Y-F-T-J-J-E-N, something like that. And in the old Icelandic, it means a thing received. And one of the, the earliest uh, usages in English is the sentence, I'll never forget this, uh, the devil gifted me trouble. Which is not to say that it was wrapped in a bow and had a card on it. It just means to be affected by a thing. And so this is not to bright side grief at all. But can you develop the capacity and the skill? Because grief is a skill, it's not a feeling to be on the receiving end of that which life is is gifting you and to be in the best way undone by it not only undone but to be undone and so developing a grief practice so you have something about the skill of grief like similarly to what you were just asking about like what about dearmoring well there's a million ways to kiss the ground as rumi says you know, if you're a gardener, man, there's a grief practice for you right there. Can you love those plants when in their full flower, you know that when they're in their full flower and they're most beautiful, they're so close to dying. And can you love them when they are brown and rotted and slimy and food for next year's plants just as much as you can love them in their high pinkness and swaying in the breezeness? You know, and if you are a person of of Italian heritage, I, mean, I guarantee you that your ancestors had more than their fair share of children who died at a time when they wouldn't have wished their children to die. Not that anyone wishes for children to die, but they did. The children die, and it's not out of the natural order of things that children die. But any small town that they lived in, whether that was you know, Syracuse in Sicily or Napoli or Genoa, wherever it was, uh, or some small town in the, in the hills, you can guarantee that your ancestors made a stitch of cloth and someone gathered in all those cloths and all of them had been prayed on. And that blanket was made from everyone in the village. And maybe the mother had that blanket or the child was buried in that blanket. Or is it, you know, the professional keeners in Ireland who cry because the rest of the people haven't started to cry yet, or the same people who do that job in Ghana? Or is it the leather workers? You know, the, all the, like, the grief practice could be anywhere but to recognize the whole in everything. But all these things which I've mentioned, like, and they're not, I could make a longer list. They all involve beauty making. And so grief has beauty making in it as a way of loving the world and loving its limits and loving its, its capacities. I mean, when you and I met, just to circle back to that, I was in the still in the early days of the grief about my marriage of 13 years ending. I'm still uh, grieved by that, not in grievance, but in grief about that. I'm not on the floor in the same way as I was back then. Um, but it's, I don't think there's any merit to just say like, I'm over things or that it's time. 
to let the time reveal itself because you know I couldn't as I said you know earlier about the woman who shook with with that deep shaking keening that a chassis can't hold that for long and it's true I couldn't stay in that level of grief which I certainly was in for long and so I've found other um, gears not to make it mechanical of of grief but my capacity to be with grief and to try to make beauty in my days with it and to not dodge it and to not make it go away um, heartbreakingly beautifully so gave me a greater capacity for loving the world which isn't this another heartbreak i wish i had had that when i was married wouldn't that have been a thing and i don't i think it's important to to visit all these heartbreaks and regrets not as for sake of of being sad i mean i have tremendous joys in my life and i'm lucky for them but to visit those that little pile of stones of regret and heartbreak so that you sort of right size them so that they, you never sort of imagine them as being too big or too small. And it's a way of being faithful to, to touch them every day, every once in a while. So they end up being like a kind of rosary of your sorrows, uh, which of course, like any good rosarian knows, you don't pray only on the sorrows. So that's some of my content. I, again, I have so much to say about grief, but um, these are some of the things to say about grief about how it's connected to beauty and how it's connected with loving the world and being honestly impacted by the thing. Yeah. Beauty of the grief of the, again, willingness to, I don't want to say hold all of it because that's not the right way, but to be in relationship with all of it, all of the, the flavors and tastes and textures and flow. Yeah, as they come, I mean, it's not trying to generate a particular experience, um, but it's also not just pure surrender either. I mean, there might be periods of that. But again, this is why it's a skill. You don't come into the world knowing how to do this. Um, it's not just falling into the, the fallacy of the natural, like, oh, I feel like crying, so there we go, I'm crying, and when it's done, it's done. Um, again, all that stuff's been deflected by how we're supposed to hold ourselves in the world. How many people do you know who have said, like, oh, I don't want to cry in front of you, or like, I need to like look on, you know, that stuff, like, you can, you can roll your eyes, but like, it's there. Constantly. And, and that's, that's a grief. We live in a grief illiterate time, a grief illiterate non-culture. And so you know, literacy is a skill. Grief is a skill. How do you read the times of, of your heart and of your gut and of the, and of the, the heart and the gut of the world? Mm. Thank you. Sure. I always love having conversations with you and seeing where we travel yeah and that that every step is sacred as we we journey and yeah so gratitude for your heart and your capacity and the as you were sharing one of the things that i was feeling into was the the beauty of maturing mm. Yeah. Of that, like loving that process of getting older, of not getting jaded, but being more open and more wrecked by the world and more in love. Yeah. And it's not always equal and it won't always be equal. It's a, it's a lurching stumble <laughs> for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah. <laughs> so may we all keep stumbling along yeah. perhaps with a little bit of art uh, in our stumble yeah yeah and catching each other when we can 
stuff for sure. Yeah. Gratitude. Grand. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with a fellow warrior goddess. If you felt fully empowered and inspired by what you heard today, we want to know about it. You can share your feedback by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We thank you for your support. It's the fastest way to fuel the revolution. To learn more about the Warrior Goddess Revolution and other Warrior Goddess offerings, visit us at www.warriorgoddess.com.